2: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Thomas Hubble. Thomas is a teacher, author, and facilitator whose work integrates wisdom, traditions, and mysticism with the discoveries of science. Since the early 2000s, he has been facilitating large scale events and courses that focus on the healing and integration of trauma, with a special focus on the shared history of Israelis and Germans. Over the last decade, he has facilitated dialogue with thousands of people around healing the collective traumas of racism, oppression, colonialism, genocides in the U.S., Israel, Germany, Spain, and Argentina. In November of 2020, Thomas's first book was published by Sounds True, Healing Collective Trauma process for integrating our intergenerational and cultural wounds. His nonprofit organization, The Pocket Project works to support the healing of collective trauma throughout the world. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas.
0: Oh, thank you, Sharon. Thank you for having me here. I'm delighted.
2: We had the chance to have a conversation at at this very wonderful symposium you put on through the Garrison Institute and, and, uh, that was prior to your book, I believe. And so here we are.
0: That's right, yeah, the Collective Trauma Summit, right. Yeah, it was beautiful.
2: So congratulations on the release of your book. It's your first book, which is quite a moment in time. And and uh, it's an extraordinary time to bring a book into the world. The need is so strong and and, and yet the <laughs> normal, uh, things we count on for getting together, for gathering, are, are just not there.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's actually my third book, but uh, my the first two books are just in German. So in German, yeah. To English. So yeah, it's my first English, um, let's say, more mainstream publication, right?
2: Interesting. Well, I'm in the unfortunate position of only speaking English. And so I get uh, translation of one of my books into another language and and I am reliant on other people to tell me if it's good or not. I think it's wonderful that you can actually read them both in you know both languages and and <laughs> uh, right. tell for yourself you know
0: <laughs> that's right actually i'm reading the German translation right now right it's funny to read your own <laughs> your yeah. own book in your mother in your mother tongue.
2: So, for our listeners out there who aren't familiar with you, what brought you to this path?
0: Yes, yeah, Sharon the um, you know, I came back from a four year meditation retreat, and uh, I was pretty much sitting all day and um and then, through somebody that really saw me in, uh, back in Vienna at that time, um, people started to invite me to, to workshops and, uh, and my groups grew pretty quickly. And then, um, it started off at the beginning in the German speaking part of Europe, mainly. And, um, and pretty quickly, so we did awareness-based trainings. We did, uh, you know, relational trainings, and then more and more, I saw the the what we would call today the effects of trauma. And um, and then, but the way it it happened for me to point my my awareness towards collective trauma was um, that in let's say there's hundred people in a room, and then from a certain level of group coherence, of safety and relational connection in the, in the group and presence, group presence and group coherence, there were these kind of collective eruptions of, you know, Second World War and Holocaust, not only memories, but emotions, pain, like what I call today the collective unconscious simply came up through the group, through the coherence of the group. And these are very powerful processes. And the first time I thought, okay, it's a, it's specific to that group. But then the same thing kept happening. And uh, in any other group, it's just different people. And that was long enough together. Like it was mainly in longer retreats after day three or four. And, and so then I started to study that and I thought, okay, so life shows me something. And, and that was the beginning. I think this was... about 18 years ago. And then more and more through my groups. and, And then we did more specific groups and processes, as you said at the beginning, for facilitating like groups about the Holocaust and the Second World War in Germany, then Germany, Israel. And then we brought international groups also to here to close to Jerusalem. And and over time, I learned so much in these 18 years about, of course, about trauma and about the fact that we are sitting in a collectively traumatized world. That is, and the, that kind of collective trauma, you know, is thousands and thousands of years old. And it keeps happening in different parts of the world with, diff, with massive impacts that hurt often millions of people. And... And so I got to understand trauma is not just a, like a personal traumatization, which is that's in itself severe enough. But it's there is a whole network or web of life that our life we have been born into it, you know, and and our life happens within an unseen collective trauma field. And the more I understood that, and I understood, wow, because one of the Foundational symptoms of trauma is separation. And then I, I, it's, it's so clear that basically all we do through contemplative practices, meditation practices, and uh, the spiritual journeys is transcending separation. But we are actually transcending thousands and thousands of years of of human pain and traumatization and... And so that that led me deeper and deeper to the fact that our mystical and contemplative journey needs to be accompanied by an, in, an in-depth uh, individual and collective trauma healing process. And that's what I wrote about in the book. And uh, so that was a short uh, fast forward journey.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. It's a lifetime's journey. <clears throat> so trauma is a word that's become Pretty commonplace, maybe too commonplace, which is something I want to ask you about. So, first, I would wonder how you define the word and experience. Like, I, uh, you know, old enough so that I remember you never heard the word. And if you did hear the word, it meant an auto accident, almost, you know, something shocking and sudden and uh, sort of physically challenging, maybe, or devastating. Um, But the word is used in so many ways right now maybe that's good um that we are beginning to understand just the sort of nuance and the and the flavor of all these different experiences of trauma but let's start with the the definition and um and then i'm really interested in knowing if you feel it's used inappropriately sometimes
0: yeah yeah so i can answer that uh right away so yeah it is uh, i think multiple often used inappropriately and it's, it's it's it became inflationary so the word trauma is being used for many things that are not necessarily traumatic or re-traumatizing events so i think there's a confusion there that it's it's, it's being used too lightly uh, but let's say if we look for a definition we could say if a human being or like any other being that goes through a strongly overwhelming experience that that is overloading our capacity to process the experience strongly. It means that the nervous system is flooded by a lot of stress and maybe emotional disturbance and maybe physical pain and, you know, the, it's it's an overwhelming experience on many levels of our experience, and the nervous system has, I believe, a, a trained function trained over hundreds of thousands of years, that it can create a fragmentation and split off the part that is has that overload and shut it down, and that's why trauma comes with those with a set. With very typical symptoms, it has this hyperactivation, as we call it. So one part of our nervous system is totally activated. We are very, very stressed. And on the other hand, we are also numb. And that creates a split. And so later on, when we walk through life, it's like somebody takes a stone and throws it into a window. And the window has cracks. And so from that moment on, we see the world through that kind of internal fragmentation. But because that process often becomes, gets pushed into our unconscious, the cracks, we get used to the cracks. So it means that trauma reduces our perception of the world. And another image that is very, I think, vivid, that I often use is that Let's say you have a big TV screen on the window uh, on the wall and and you see a kind of a crazy scene of a movie or a war scene of a movie. And then it's so noisy and loud and then you take the remote control and you mute the movie. And the scene is still playing but without sound. And many people that are shocked or now traumatized kind of in kind of very recently they feel like as if they are walking through like cotton they feel they're walking in a movie that is like only partly real the life becomes two-dimensional it's like we feel like a bit removed and then we take the tv off the wall and throw it into the ocean And slowly, with the scene still playing, that TV drops deeper and deeper down into the water until it disappears in the dark. It's the human unconscious. But imagine, like, after the Holocaust, like, there are millions of TVs that are still showing the scenes of the traumatization that happened. Down there, like millions on the bottom of the ocean, in the dark, there are those scenes playing, and I think that's a very that's a, a a way how to visualize what happens in our nervous system. That those numb areas they disappear in our unconscious. So after some time, we don't know anymore what we don't feel. We don't know anymore how much of the world around us does not reach our perception because it gets absorbed in the numb parts, in the disembodied parts, in the unconscious parts of our experience. And so that's a little description of trauma and 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 the symptoms that some that one experiences is, of course, is like a lot of stress and hyperreactivity. So we overreact or we are indifferent, numb, and we don't feel. And and then there are, of course, different categories of trauma. One is, as you said, shock trauma, like a car accident or any kind of major injury or this this kind of impact. But as we know, for a baby or a two-year-old child, being neglected or being hurt, physically attacked, is super overwhelming. And so there are much more refined versions of trauma that are developmental traumatizations that many people, it's kind of a pandemic too, like many people carry inside that wouldn't say, no, I'm not traumatized. I'm, um, you know, I never had a major injury in my life. Yeah, but that's not the only source of trauma. And then when we go back, which I think both of us know is... Like the ancestral traumatization when our grandparents or parents or great grandparents, you know, survived, um, very difficult circumstances. The trauma, as we also in the collective trauma summit had a scientist speak, um, like an epigenetic scientist from Zurich, Isabel Manzooi. And she speaks about the trans, like the epigenetic transmission of trauma. So there is that kind of ancestral trauma, and then it's what I would call the systemic trauma, the collective trauma, that is a kind of a systemic effect that is cumulative over centuries or thousands of years.
2: It's kind of amazing, you know, because uh, I was thinking as you were speaking about chronic conditions like poverty or racism and and the sort of traumatic effect of of being um, at the other end of that. And uh, how, you know, some people would say that that's uh, harder to bear and, and more impactful than that kind of shock, trauma, that, you know, incident, that that dramatic upheaval, whatever it might be. It's uh, It also reminds me of the stress dynamic, which is really a dynamic. There's the stressor, the incident, the circumstance, and then there's the resource with which it's met. And uh we don't necessarily focus on either of those two, you know, the consequence of the intensity or the chronicity of of the stressor. And um to understand that we need to try to build up that sense of resource because the very thing that is most out of our control is the the situation we find ourselves in. I mean you're talking about a genetic inheritance you know that uh is not a choice It's something that um, has been written you could say in our in our genetic code, but that doesn't mean we are fated to to be defined by that
0: that's beautiful, yeah. I think um, that's very complex because you're speaking to what I would call like inner coherence or coherence or relational coherence is the resource or embodiment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fragmentation and traumatization is basically the inner split. So the coherence has the power to integrate um, the inner split if there is enough resource available for a person. And... And that's what we also experience. And I think that's what you also experience in in your work is through mindfulness, through Mm -hmm. presence, through relational attunement, through I feel you feeling me. Like the basic building block of human relation is I feel you and I feel how you feel me. That openness of our nervous system to perceive that back and forth music between two nervous systems is a tremendous relational co- uh, resource for trauma healing. So when somebody gets traumatized right now, to offer that person an empathic and attuned relation reduces the PTSD for that person enormously. And of course, as you said, when, when you, what you mentioned racism and ongoing traumatization, you know, recurrent traumatization usually creates complex trauma which means many layers of trauma being kind of tied together in in a person or a community or uh, a group of people. And, uh, and that also makes it, uh, first of all, it's recurrently painful. And it's also, you know, it, it takes longer and it's harder to treat because we need to peel like layers and layers and layers of hardened trauma. So that's why we all, I think, through our work that we are interested in, um, create more and more awareness, more and more relational skill, more and more also active engagement in the society that those recurrent traumatizations uh, are happening less and less so that we prevent what we can prevent because we know how much it affects life how much, it, how much it affects the next generation. So I'm sitting right now in Tel Aviv, 300 kilometers from where I'm sitting, there is a terrible war happening right now with you know in Syria. And, mm-hmm. and, we, and we, if you just see how many generations will suffer from the after effects of what happened in the last 10 years in Syria. I think that when we see how... Big are the scars or the wounds that, that uh, get inflicted through the war or like a holocaust. It keeps mm-hmm. generations and generations busy with suffering um, because of the enormous impact that, that pain and catastrophe created.
2: Do you think that um, healing from collective trauma is is a somewhat different path than healing from personal trauma? Because I was thinking of, um, I wonder if th- in a collective situation, realizing that you're actually not alone, that there are others who have been similarly affected as you, if, if that uh, isn't something actually of a little bit of a relief because of the, the harrowing isolation and, and sense of not belonging and not fitting in anywhere that can come as a result of a traumatic experience.
0: Right. Yes. I think on the one hand, there is like a what I often call a tribal trauma response. There is like the community that gets traumatized. So there is like a a deepening of the relational resourcing as I think as a As a function that life developed, you know, also during the time when we lived in tribes and other tribes were our enemies, and you know, the tribe was your only way of survival. So I believe that we we come together in times of crisis, and um, and there is a relational component that I think is stabilizing. On the other hand, the what I have seen when I worked also a lot in Germany with people that either got born at the end of the war or like right after. That um, I call this, like, because you asked me, is there a difference in the healing? And, mm-hmm. and I think, yes, there is a difference because collective trauma is very complex and it includes the personal trauma. So your, your personal trauma history, my personal mm-hmm. trauma history, a part of the collective trauma that we try to heal. And so for a collective trauma healing, we need a collective. So we need large groups. So we brought together very large groups and um, and through the collective presencing, it's like that the collective presencing and the relational attunement is like the surface of of a small little pond. And when the water surface is coherent, then you see the reflection of the nature around on the water surface. And I often describe that a group can become the water surface for the unseen collective unconscious material to arise between us, through us. And it's like we are volunteering to clean and clear up and integrate the past, like our past, our ancestors' past, our culture's past, and so one difference is that I think the community plays a much larger role in the collective trauma integration. It's a very complex process because it needs also a good skill set to be able to integrate individual or personal traumatization. And um, so when we worked with clients on their individual trauma integration, in these places in Germany, for example, then we, we saw that the collective atmosphere, the fact that many people get traumatized at the same time, you know, when a city gets bombed, like the hundreds of thousands of people might be in bunkers in basements and like fearing for their lives. There is a collective instability as well. So there's a collective coming together but there is also a collective instability that is like an atmosphere, like an atmosphere of a war, for example, that gets wired in the nervous system of the person with the trauma. Because we need to understand that trauma is like a hostage in, in space time. Because the trauma in us doesn't get any updates anymore. It can't develop mm-hmm. because it's frozen. And as long as we don't de-ice it, it will stay frozen. And so even the the collective atmosphere is frozen in the ice, like fossils in the, in the, you know, uh, Arctic, um, that are, that need to be de-iced in order to be integrated. So these are just a few elements of the complexity that I Mm -hmm. see when we do this kind of healing work.
2: Thank you for that. When when you were talking earlier, you talked about the nervous system. And I also have a question about exploring how the stories that others tell about us can affect our sense of self and our well-being. I'm sitting here talking to you from Barry, Massachusetts, next door to the Insight Meditation Society. And I sometimes tell the story about this kind of architectural feature we added to the front of the building so that people in wheelchairs can access the front of the building instead of having to go around the side and into the back. And uh, there are a lot of inconveniences uh, for other people around this particular structure, including me, who am um, not perhaps the world's greatest driver and I have to back out you know with it protruding into the driveway and things like that but it is so absolutely the correct story to tell about who belongs and the the rightfulness of an entrance and and all of that that um it seems absolutely worth it and and there's some interesting mix there between um what's happening in our nervous system which i think is a much more recent discovery in terms of trauma and and woundedness and so on. Um, but there also seems to be some role for that kind of story, the story we tell ourselves about who we are and what our lives can look like, the story very particularly that others have told about us that we've somehow incorporated.
0: Yeah, definitely, that's right. And and we, we also see in the When we do trauma work, what we see is trauma always fragments the physical, emotional, and mental experience. So what I cannot feel in my body and what is maybe blocked in my emotions, I need oftentimes to think, overthink in order to compensate on what I can't feel. So the security that is not wired in my own experience becomes many worrying thoughts in my mind. So my mind will, and also the stress of the traumatization or maybe also an attachment trauma creates a lot of stress in kids. But then we become so used to that stress that the stress kind of gets pushed back into kind of a normal state. But when people study meditation, then the stress activation of the central nervous system means more thinking. So many people, and I'm sure you saw this thousands of times, that people come to meditation classes and what they deal with is a racing mind. Mm -hmm. But the racing mind is often an effect of stress that the person wouldn't even say I'm stressed. And I saw with many people when they started to uncover their early attachment trauma, that they started to feel stress that they couldn't feel anymore for decades because it's so early in our life and it becomes so integrated into our sense of self. Only when we uncover it, we loosen up the numbness, like an anesthesia, then we start to feel again how stressful and why we are thinking so much. And that in order to speak to the story is when because healing creates an integration of the mind, the emotion and the body sensation. They become again one message. So when my narrative of myself and my inward outward perception are coherent, then when what people say about me can find either inner resonance or not, and I have a good inner sense of self that I can relate to my external environment. But if my internal sense of self is fragmented, then I, I take on either more opinions of the outside about me or my own narrative is also incoherent. So my, what I'm saying is, I think through the trauma healing, the narrative, my life's narrative, my emotional narrative and my physical narrative become one narrative. And, we, and I think we see this right now through social media and technology and fake news. Because I often say fake news has no depth. Fake news has no history. It doesn't have roots. It's like plastic, it's manufactured mm-hmm. information. And the more we are disembodied, the more we are kind of vulnerable to believe fake news. But believing means think. Like it enters our mind because our body has no reference of truth. Because my body is hundreds of thousands of years old. Everybody's body. So the wisdom of all the generations before us that built the physical body so that our body looks like it looks like, is sitting in us. This is the achievement of evolution. And I, either when I'm open in my nervous system, I can resonate with you. I can feel you. I can feel your words. I can feel how your words resonate within you when you speak them. So there's a a field of resonance that creates a relational attunement. And, and I think often in the places where we are traumatized, we can feel. And then Either narratives influence us, or we are very, you know, we are very, um, we are very vulnerable to misinformation or disinformation that is not um, congruent with the actual reality. And I think that's that's what we see right now in the massive amount of polarization, conspiracy theories, like us versus them. I think that has a lot to do with the disembodiment through the traumatizations.
2: Mm. Well, that's really interesting because we are certainly seeing that along with other things I want to ask you about. But before uh, I go on to that, uh, this specific time that we're in, um, I want to just bring the conversation back for a moment to the nervous system because... Uh, that is, I think, a more pioneering understanding of of trauma. And I'm thinking about, as one example, um, when I was co-leading a retreat for people who had suffered from gun violence, they'd either themselves uh, been shot or they'd witnessed something or they'd lost a child. I mean, some terrible incident. And um, as part of this retreat, somebody was giving a presentation on the vagus nerve and, and things like that. And this one mom came up to me and she was just like lit up from within. And, and she had, her son had been killed. And, uh, she said, you know, I've struggled for so long, almost like she didn't use these words exactly, but almost in theological terms, like, um, why can't I give this over to God? Why can't I, uh, surrender? Um, And she said, "Now I see, it's just my nervous system." And Mm -hmm. she was really rating it. You know, it was like it was Mm -hmm. so forgiving of herself in a way Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that uh, there's something very important there, I think as well.
0: That's right, very much so. And you you framed it like um, at the collective trauma summit that that you spoke at. um, There was also um, Steve Borges as one of the speakers, and, and, and he developed it's a beautiful the polyvagal theory that you spoke about. It's so beautiful because the vagal nervous system belongs to the parasympathetic nervous system that helps us to down-regulate uh, stress. But when, he, when we are traumatized or shocked, then there's it, it a kind of a freeze. When we say our heart is open... There's a frontal part of the vagal nervous system that runs through the, our chest and it gives the feeling when it's open. First of all, we feel heart open and we have the power to co-regulate with another nervous system with a person that is stressed right now. When I feel the stress of another person and I listen to the whatever the person tells me what happened to him or her, then our two nervous systems Go into a state of um, go into a state of uh, connection and co-regulation, and that's um, a very powerful tool for everybody who facilitates groups, for everybody who facilitates one-on-one processes. Is a teacher, but also just as parents, we that function of our. Um, Vagal nervous system is how we co-regulate with our kids. So, when a child, you know, there's this typical uh, example that we can give for co-regulation. Let's say a child comes to me and, and my child says to me, Daddy, Daddy, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. And, and then I have two options. Either I tell my child, Okay, don't be scared. There is nothing dangerous here. Or I say, Oh, I feel that you're scared. Come to me. I embrace my child and say, Okay, let's have a look together. So, in the first intervention, there is no danger there. I give a mental answer to an emotional request. My child says, I'm afraid. And I tell my child, Don't be afraid, which is a very unskillful intervention. But if I say to my child, oh yes, I feel you're scared, come to me. Then I create emotional resonance, I embrace my child, there's co-regulation through the vagal nervous system, and then there is parental leadership and say, okay, let's have a look at this together, what, what scares you? And, and I think that's uh, that's amazing for therapists, of course, too, but it's, it's, it's a kind of a leadership, a skillful leadership intervention that everybody who works in, in an organization is a leader of a team. Or, you know, how we receive people is either through resonance, through a landing, and then an intellectual guidance or clarification. That's a completely different process than if we answer emotional requests through. Um, uh, intellectual, also with in, by, like through intellectual interventions. That's um, and the nervous system is is amazing. It's like it's super intelligent. It's such a such a highly complex um, system. It's fascinating, and also that our nervous system, in my understanding, there's a part of our nervous system that is personal, but then there's a part of our nervous system that is collective that we carry inside of our nervous system, the, you know, the legacy and the achievements of our ancestors, It's like a huge library that we are, uh, living in. And the part of that library is our personal life, but a much bigger part of that library is our collective history mm-hmm. of humanity. Well let's
2: talk about the time we are in now speaking of collective history where uh it it uh we're recording this just after New Year's Eve and which is always a moment in time where you know people uh who think about it often think about beginning again or renewal or or uh change you know some something like that and i think about how many of us are longing for some change right now um, because it's been so hard for so many people. I read the chat sometimes and um, you know, when I'm doing a zoom session and school teachers are writing in uh, my children Mm. can't learn so well online. They're, they're all depressed. Or Mm. people tell me my daughter misses her friends so much. She cries herself to sleep or uh, one resident of a nursing home wrote to a friend recently and said, I have not had a visitor in eight months. Um, and I feel so incredibly lonely and, uh, you know, there's so much going on. It's so difficult that, uh, the word collective trauma is maybe the most appropriate term that that we could use. And so I'm wondering what you have to say for people, all of us navigating this Uh pandemic through the lens of the work that, you know, you've done for so long.
0: Right. Right. And it's true. I think many people, for many people, it's like, it's deeply challenging since, you know, presence and relation are the two main remedies to heal trauma. And it's on the one hand good news because it is something that we all uh, are part of, that we all are capable of. So, providing right relation and appropriate relation is what heals trauma because often trauma is being inflicted through inappropriate relation. And, and presencing and mindfulness and, and being uh, kind of connected to the sensations in our bodies, emotions, minds that are happening right now. These are all wonderful practices that are deeply helpful in the trauma healing process. And of course, for some people, the traumatization is so complex through massive abuse or as you said, through racial violence or injustice or genocides. This is like way more complex trauma and still there the like relation and, and and relational resourcing is super important. And then we look at the isolation in the COVID time, so then if there is less and less of a warming and you know caring relation, then the internal loneliness or the internal separation, we said at the beginning one of the most fundamental trauma symptoms is that we feel separate, that we feel alone, that we feel we don't belong, that we feel isolated. And so if if the external resources get less or decreased, so then the internal symptoms of the trauma get stronger. And I think that's what we see right now as well. Like... As you said, in our children, and we see it in, in people that are really isolated and need to be protected, but also are lacking the kind of relational warmth. We need that warmth because we are social animals. And not everybody is a yogi sitting in the Himalayan mountains in you know in deep meditation. That's different. <laughs> but for us in the marketplace, like in life, in culture, we like also relation, I believe, is part of our spiritual practice. And so, yes, I think that that when they're... And so now we can see like how, how important it is as parents to be a guided, guiding light for our children right now. Either our kids learn on Zoom, but even if they go to school, they're put into smaller... Um, you know, groups at school—they are not always with their friends, and they need to wear masks. And uh, and I think if parents are really in right relation to their kids, they they're you know receiving what really troubles them. That's the time that at least where we can provide relation, where we can care for our neighbor, or we know that you know somebody needs something, and we can do it as a community service. All those even small actions or interactions are actually community building and they resilience building. Of course, we need to be aware of the COVID restriction and social distancing. But even through Zoom, even now when I talk to you, mm-hmm. I, I can either feel you and be like attuned to you. And then when I feel you, I feel your presence here even if I, I don't see you now, but I can, I can be in tune with, with your presence. And that gives me a feeling of being deeply related to you. Mm-hmm. So, and, and many people that, that study or work now on Zoom, um, I think through really using our body and getting some basic training in how to uh, feel each other through the virtual spaces, Um, can create warm virtual spaces that are more nourishing than distant virtual spaces.
2: Thank you. I'm I'm actually also curious because you've specialized in this work for such a long time. What inspired you to write a book right now? Although I'm aware, of course, that one writes the book sometimes a considerable amount of time before it's published. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure when you wrote it.
0: <laughs> yeah that's very true as you said you're you know that as a <laughs> as a prolific author but the, yes the um I wrote a book 2 years ago um together with Julie uh Chodenovrit and um and but in the book there is you know there's the concentrated essence of 18 years of group experience. That's why I wrote also in the book that the book, like everybody who has ever been in one of my groups, retreats, uh, one-on-one sessions, and then there's uh, over 100,000 people, like the, that everybody is part of the book because my whole studying and learning is through all the processes and all the group, um, dynamics and, and revelations we had in that time. And it's it's very interesting that it actually was published exactly in, you know, last year, in fall uh, 2020, when there is uh, this major outbreak. But it speaks to something that I believe is the topic of our time, like through through the global village, which is also largely has been created through um, the technology that we are using, the speed of data, that also the amount of population on the planet. So we, are, we became a village and suddenly there is no out there. You know, before we put the toxic waste out there, <laughs> But now in the village, there is no out there. So suddenly everything is in here. Mm-hmm. And and also our traumatization through the speed of, of data, I think get many more trigger and uh, impulses to get triggered. And so it comes up more and more. And I believe we are literally transitioning into a time of where collective healing and the understanding of the interdependence that there is no separate individual. An individual is always a specific expression of the whole. And that interdependence between the whole and the individual, I believe is interdependent medicine. That's a, a way of looking at individuals where we include the collective. So there's no individual health only. There's only individual health within the context that that individual lives in. And if that context doesn't provide uh, certain resources, so it will be much harder for the individual to keep up like an internal state of health. And that interdependence, I believe, is something that is part of collective healing also. And through the collective healing work, we will also learn even more about, uh, for example, chronic illnesses that are very hard to treat at the moment that we can keep somehow, you know, steady, but we don't find a real cure for them. And um, because the collective and the individual are always interdependent or interrelated, or as Thich puts it, beautiful... The, the inter-are, mm-hmm. like interbeing, And uh, so I think that there is a lot of exciting new development happening at the moment in the collective healing dimension.
2: Well, thank you for, for that and for your tremendous contribution to that field. And I'm wondering, just to end, if you could lead us in a guided meditation.
0: Yes, I'd love that, actually. And um and you know, I, I let's um, use a few minutes. Just practice a bit what what we spoke about when we talked about the coherence between body, emotions, mind, presence. So it will guide us a few steps through all those levels, and everybody can look how you feel, so maybe we can. Take a deeper breath. Slow down a bit the exhalation, and then ride the wave of our out breath or exhalations into the body. So every time I exhale, I sink a bit deeper into my body. To connect to the body sensations that are present right now, to feel whether are which areas in the body are more alive, which areas are less alive. Maybe they're pulsing, streaming,
1: sensations,
2: or maybe tension,
1: stress.
0: We include all of those sensations, The physical body is the home of our emotional experience. I can I can what's my emotional experience right now? Why do we feel emotionally a bit distant, disconnected? Which is equally fine. And then the body and the emotions give rise to the mind and the mental activities. Check in the quality of my mind. How does my mind feel right now? Open, relaxed, more tense, calm, busy, spacious. Let's have a look at what is aware of you feeling, your body, your emotions, your mind. What's the awareness itself? I'm aware and I feel myself. What is aware? And then gently take a couple of deeper breaths. Feel the body well. If you're sitting or wherever you are right now, that your body is in your awareness. And with a couple of deeper breaths, slowly open your eyes
2: thank you so much for that it made me want to immediately uh get your book out and just follow the exercises (laughs)
1: actually uh
2: thank you all so much for joining us today to learn more about thomas's work you can visit thomas huble it's dot com. And get yourself a copy of his book, Healing Collective Trauma, via collectivetraumabook.com. Big thank you to all of our listeners out there. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease.
1: Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at com.